Well, another Christmas has come and gone. The beautifully wrapped presents under your trees have been torn to shreds. The trash containers are full of boxes and wrapping paper. Refrigerators are full of leftovers. Families have or will be making the journey back to their respective homes. Many of us have already taken down all the decorations. And next, next Sunday, the sanctuary will look rather bare as we take down these decorations for another year. We've been there, done that, and now it's time to move along to the new year. In this season of joy, I suppose we all find ourselves with different perspectives on what has happened and where we go from here. For some of you, the last month has been absolutely perfect. You're in a season of life when things are going well and you have much to be happy about in this life. You fully embrace all of the trappings of the season and you love every minute of it. Perhaps it's hard to say goodbye to the Christmas season you have enjoyed. And you wish in some measure that the wonder of the season could be sustained just a little bit longer. If only you could keep the joy of Christmas alive. Others of you are utterly exhausted from all of the festivities. Your bodies are tired from overdoing it. Your emotions are on edge from too much family time. <laughs> you feel miserably bloated and guilty from all of the feasting. And if you have to stand in one more line to give somebody money for something, you're going to come unglued. You've been too busy to experience the joy of the season. And perhaps now that it's over, you can get some peace and quiet. Some of you have gotten wrapped up in finding your joy in the stuff of Christmas. You're either very disappointed because you didn't get what you wanted, and now you have to stand in the return exchange lines in order to achieve happiness. Or you are elated with what you got and are still in euphoria with your new toy or gadget. If only you could make the joy you find in material things last longer than a week. And then there are many who have suffered through the merriment of the last month in excruciating pain. All the while putting forth a smile on your face so as not to be a Scrooge for everyone else. This time of year heightens your depression it brings back a painful memory of past abuse. It's another year of a family holiday without a family or without a spouse who has died or deserted you. Or perhaps this season magnifies the stressful relationships in your family or the loss of a family member or dear friend. The Christmas season has been unbearable, and you're glad to see it go. If not to experience joy on the other side, perhaps the pain that you're experiencing won't be so acute. And so here we are with another Christmas behind us, and I'm wondering, where has it left us? Has the celebration of God becoming flesh to save you had an impact upon your life? Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord or just muddling through? And what is the joy of the Lord anyway? Surely real Christmas joy wasn't reflected in any of the aforementioned scenarios, is joy really something that can come and go because your favorite Christmas song was just played on the radio or you didn't get the perfect present? Can it be bestowed on us by the love of family or stolen away by human loss and rejection? And so we look to the word of God to find Christmas joy for the tedious journey of this life. Please follow along as I read our text 
this morning, Psalm 98. We've read a great portion of this already for our call to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Oh, Father, the joy is palpable that we see in this psalm expressed because of your advent. Lord, help us to be joy-filled people on this kingdom pilgrimage that we make through this life. And now, Lord, open our hearts and minds to your word, reveal your truth to us, and conform us to the image of your Son, we pray in his name. Amen. Today we look at the third psalm in a series that I'm preaching as opportunities arise like this. While it might seem a daunting task to find a psalm that reflects the message of Christmas, the search was not a long one. For as we have seen in our study, the psalms address all facets of life and theology. As Luther said, they are a little Bible encapsulated in the book of Psalms. Christ is central to their message as he is central to the whole of Scripture. And to see an event as significant as his advent in the Psalter is not a hard find at all. For certainly an event of this magnitude is worthy of a song or two from the divine hymnal. And lest you wonder if this notion is original with me, I can assure you that I stand on the shoulders of many who have gone before, who agree that Psalm 98 is rightly understood to speak of Christ, and more specifically, Christ and his advent. Psalm 98 is one of a group, numbers 93 through 100, that are known as royal psalms, hymns that celebrate the kingship of Christ, his eternal reign. The psalm is sort of a coronation hymn, as you see, with blasts of trumpets, clapping of hands, celebration of triumphs. It is a uniquely bold, lively, and even noisy psalm. An interesting musical connection of this psalm is its relationship to our opening hymn today, Joy to the World. Isaac Watts, an 18th century British pastor, wrote Joy to the World as a hymn version of Psalm 98. Watts clearly saw, as so many other commentators and preachers have seen through the centuries, that the psalm before us is an Advent psalm. Another interesting connection with that is that in the Anglican liturgy of evening prayer, Psalm 98, according to the Book of Common Prayer, may be recited as a song alternative to Mary's Magnificat from Luke chapter 1. The song she sang in response to her carrying the Christ child in her womb. 
The parallels between these two passages, Psalm 98 and Mary's song, are striking, as many have pointed out. And it's clear, and perhaps the Holy Spirit may very well have used Mary's familiarity with the psalm to help her formulate her divine song found in Luke's gospel. There is a messianic connection to the psalm. According to 18th century Methodist theologian Adam Clark, this psalm is an evident prophecy of Christ coming to save the world. And what is here foretold by David is in the Blessed Virgin song, chanted forth as being accomplished. The parallels are very striking, and the psalm is to be ultimately understood of the redemption of the world by Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his gospel through all the nations of the earth. We often hear that you should not separate the birth of Christ from the cross of Christ, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that statement. But I might take it a step further and say that we shouldn't separate Christ's first advent from his second advent. What I mean by that is that too often we separate the two events on some kind of human timeline or end times chart as though they have nothing to do with one another. And yet the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah, do not allow us this luxury. For in the same breath, they prophesy and speak of Messiah's humble birth, his crucifixion, and his eternal reign as king upon the earth. They understood the advent of Christ to be one event. This is perhaps, as we have talked about before, why, why many rejected Christ when he did not overthrow the Roman government and set up his earthly reign at his first coming. That was the expectation. We must understand that the story of Advent was not completed in the manger. It had only begun. It is ongoing. Christ has come to save, is now coming through his spirit to reign in hearts and lives, and will come to judge and set things right. Without this understanding, our celebration of Advent will be only partial, and we will never find the true joy of this season. And so we conclude another Christmas in the life of our church, and as we do that, let us focus our hearts and minds upon the Advent hymn before us. I'll remind you that the verse numbers that are in your Bibles were added much later by biblical translators and scholars and that the song is actually divided into three stanzas. Some of your Bibles will have them in paragraphs according to those three stanzas. And they're divided in this way. Verses 1 through 3 encompass stanza 1 of the hymn. Verses 4 through 6, the second verse of the hymn. And 7 through 9, the third verse of the hymn. And this is the way the outline is structured today and how we will approach the psalm. In stanza one, we see Christ is Savior. The Messiah has redeemed the elect. In these opening verses, we see the wonderful parallel to Mary's words in Luke that we have just talked about. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The marvelous work of the Lord wrought in salvation is worthy of our greatest and newest efforts in worship. No old song written for a previous occasion is warranted to mark such a momentous event in the plan of the ages. No, we must have a new song, a commissioned work to celebrate the coming of Christ. And as we celebrate, we acknowledge that it is his arm 
not ours, nor the arm of any other that has worked salvation. And it is for his glory, not ours. Again, Mary sings, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Christ's work of salvation was made known to the nations in himself. His righteousness is not hidden. People need not scour the earth to find it. It isn't secret information that only a handful of us possess. It is revealed to all in Jesus Christ so that they are without excuse. We see this truth expressed in another of the Christmas songs in the Bible. In Simeon's song, in Luke chapter 2, we read these words, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What a blessing for this old saint of God who served so faithfully in the work of God to be holding the Christ child in his arms and to see in his arms the consolation of Israel before he died. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that the work of Christ's advent was to show forth the righteousness of God. I draw your attention to verse 3 of our text where we're reminded that our God is a covenant-keeping God. For in providing salvation through the cross of Christ, God has been faithful to the covenant of grace he made with Israel that all the ends of the earth would be blessed. Abraham couldn't have imagined to what extent the promise was made, that spiritually speaking, his family tree would be beyond comprehension. Again, the parallel to Mary's song is striking. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Additionally, we see in this verse that the scope of this salvation is to the house of Israel, those whom God has called. And the tense is in the past tense. While it was likely written in response to a specific event in Israel's history as a worship song of ancient Israel, the tense may be applied to Christians as we look back to the finished work of Messiah at his first advent. Christ came in the flesh, lived a righteous life to fulfill the law that we could not, suffered our eternal penalty and died upon the cross to secure our salvation. Then he rose again from the tomb, conquering death once and for all. And our, in our timeline, we could go even further back in the past before the foundation of the world when we were chosen in Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. Our adoption through Jesus Christ is according to his will, not ours. It is his arm that saves, not ours. We do not have the ability within us to grasp hold of what is offered in Jesus Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit's interceding. The hymn says it well, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross. I cling. Another treasure in the psalm before us is to see Christ in his three divine offices of prophet, priest, and king. 
In this first stanza of the psalm, we see Christ fulfilling the office of priest as he has provided salvation for his people through his advent. His coming as Savior to redeem his people. In a third Advent song in the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah's song, the father of John the Baptizer, who would be a cousin of the Lord Jesus. We see the same truths expressed in this way. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God has kept his covenant of grace with his people through his son, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer and Savior. In stanza two of the psalm, we see that Christ is king. The Messiah is reigning over the nations of the earth. There is no response more appropriate than sheer joy before our Savior King. Look at the text in that second stanza and how joyful it is. The trumpets announce the arrival of royalty. They play the king's music. You'll remember that when the future king and queen of England were married not too long ago, that it was preceded and announced with trumpets, sounding a royal fanfare for their wedding. How much more the arrival and reign of the king of kings demands a joyous processional filled with loud singing and the playing of every instrument imaginable and every voice that can even utter a sound, worshiping in joy. All that can be mustered must proclaim him king of kings and lord of lords. Notice in this stanza that the scope of worship has now broadened from the house of Israel in stanza one and now includes all the earth. Each that has a voice or can play an instrument. Even the heathen bring glory to the king whether they know it or not. The tense here is not in the past, but is in the present. For the believer, this is a reminder that Christ is now reigning as king of the universe from his throne on high. Peter proclaimed in the book of Acts that when he, Christ, conquered death and the grave, he ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign as heir to the throne of David. Oh, what comfort we have in knowing that the sovereign of the universe is our bridegroom. If you are his, how will he let anything come your way that is not for your good and his glory? All of the details of your life, from the highest mountaintops of satisfaction to the deepest valleys of suffering, have been orchestrated by the lover of your soul who is reigning on high. Take heart that the sovereign of the universe is on his throne today. His advent continues in this present age as he comes to reign in the lives of believers, preparing and calling to himself a spotless bride, the church. Christ is fulfilling his office of king. He is reigning over the nations of the earth. In the final stanza of our psalm, we see that Christ is judge. The Messiah will reconcile the whole of creation. 
Our pastor, Dale, focused upon this aspect of Christ's advent last week. And I need only remind you of this glorious truth. Notice in this stanza that the scope of worship has shifted yet again and now extends to the inanimate creation itself. Rivers are clapping their hands. The tense has also shifted to the future, for as we have stated, Christ's advent is not complete. The whole creation groans and will rejoice at the return of the Savior King who will judge. Jesus Christ will return to set all things right. He will reconcile to himself all things. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, a passage we have visited many times over the last year. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. As Dale emphasized last week, things aren't right. The world is turned upside down, and everyone knows it. Saved and unsaved alike. Something in the depth of our humanity, in the very fabric of who we are, knows that it's not the way it's supposed to be. But our glorious hope, brothers and sisters, is that one day it will be when he comes to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He judged it in the beginning and proclaimed it good. We will hear this pronouncement again one day. The judgment for the elect is over. It was accomplished upon the cross, and our penalty was borne by Jesus Christ. However, there is still a reckoning to take place. The judgment of those outside his grace and the restoration, recreation, and reconciliation of the whole of creation. As judge, we see Christ fulfilling his third office of prophet, for it is the role of the prophets to pronounce God's judgment and to proclaim his decrees. While the role of judge may seem fearful to some, it is here that the Christian has their blessed hope. What could bring you more joy than to know that all of this is going to be right one day? All the messes in our lives, all the injustices of society, all the inequalities among people, all of the rampant, unchecked sin that happens unjudged, all will be right with the world and everything in it. Isaac Watts, the author of Joy to the World, expresses our future joy in this way. How divinely full of glory and pleasure shall that hour be when all the millions of mankind that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God 
shall meet together and stand around him with every tongue and every heart full of joy and praise. How astonishing will be the glory and the joy of that day when all the saints shall join together in one common song of gratitude and love and of everlasting thankfulness to this Redeemer. With that unknown delight and inexpressible satisfaction shall all that are saved from the ruins of sin and hell address the Lamb that was slain and rejoice in his presence. O child of God, our joy is not found in the circumstances of this life. Joy of Christmas is not found in the trinkets of dust that we give to one another. It isn't found by the warm, fuzzy feelings of the season. It isn't even found in the love of family. And it's not found in doing acts of benevolence or kindness to one another. If there is a glimmer of joy to be found in any of these things, it is only because they are a pale reflection of the one in whom Christmas joy is found. The only source of joy that we have for this tedious pilgrimage called life is the very object of Christmas itself. Our Advent Savior, King, and Judge. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. To try and find joy in any other thing than the source is futile, and it will only leave you wanting. Pastor John Piper says this, the key to Christian living is a thirst and hunger for God. And one of the main reasons people do not understand or experience the sovereignty of grace and the way it works through the awakening of sovereign joy is that their hunger and thirst for God is too small. Christian, if you know and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ the Savior has completely and utterly redeemed a people to himself and that you are one of those, then how can you be anything but joyful knowing that you are free from works, free from judgment, free from guilt, free from fear, and yours is to but enjoy rest, forgiveness, peace, and contentment. Christian, if you know and believe in your heart that Christ is king and sovereign over all the affairs of this present world, that he is sitting upon his throne orchestrating the history of humanity, then how will that change how you live out the tediousness of this life? How will it change your perceptions of what is going on in the world around you today? Be joyful and stand in wonder that it is all part of his glorious plan and that we will one day fall in worship and awe when we see the final beautiful picture that he is painting. And Christian, if you know and believe in your heart that Christ will come as judge to set all things right, that he has already judged your sin and has found you lacking nothing in him, that the scales of time will be perfectly balanced, then how can you help but possess joy unspeakable for the pilgrimage that is ours? The key to living out a joy-filled existence is to live life in a permanent state of Christmas or Advent. In doing this, we remember the gospel, what he did for us when he came in history. 
We participate in the gospel by sharing the good news to those that he is still coming to, those whom he is seeking out. And we hope for his coming again when the gospel will be fulfilled in its splendor and completion. Oh, what joy should be ours all year long. Take the message of Christmas with you. Rehearse it in your mind and in your hearts every day. Live it out on this tedious pilgrimage and hope in what is to come. Augustine said, There is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you. For your own sake, whose joy you yourself are, and this is the happy life, to rejoice in you, to you, of you, for you. This it is, and there is no other. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, is coming, and will come again. Let us pray. Father, what joy you have given us. What inexplicable joy is ours upon this pilgrimage of life. Enable us to be joy-filled people who live out our existence as a testimony to those around us of the joy of Advent and Christmas. And Father, I pray that you would enable us to be kingdom people who are living in expectation of your glorious return. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.